Psalm 19 to the choir master, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, if you've been with us lately, you know that we've been studying through the Psalms. And if you were with us last week, then you know that we took a look together at Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 required us to do something, metaphorically speaking. It, it required us to get out a blanket and go out into the backyard and spread it out on the ground and lay down on it somewhere next to David, the psalmist, and to look up into the night skies and to gaze with wonder over the skies, over the created order that God himself has made. And if you were here with us last week, then hopefully at least that didn't just make you feel small. Uh, it absolutely and unequivocally convinced you that you are small. Because we realized last week, as we looked at the earth and the solar system and the galaxy and even talked a little bit about the universe, that you and I, size-wise at least, are nothing more than tiny little specks on a planet that is itself a tiny little speck in a solar system that is itself a tiny little speck in a galaxy that even though it's an average-sized galaxy, meaning it's 100,000 light-years wide, is just a speck in the universe that God has made with His, were you here? With His fingers. And that was revealing because, frankly, that's the comparison David's calling us to make in Psalm 8. He's not saying, hey, compare yourself with the universe and realize that you're really, really small. He's saying, no, 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 no. The universe is something small to God. It's like a, a toy car, you know, that you and I would put together. He's like, the Lord put it together, poetically, but with His fingers. So how big is He? Because that's the comparison. Isaiah comes to us in Isaiah 40 and he says, hey, you know what? The Lord is so huge that he can measure off the universe with the span of his hand and yet the gospel comes to us and says the Lord is so humble that through a supernatural conception, he became one of us. Think about that. A speck on a planet that is a speck 
in a solar system that is a speck, in a galaxy that is a speck, in a universe that he himself put together like you and I would a toy car. And he did that for you. That's remarkable. But not only that, Isaiah says in the same verse that all of the waters of this world, which I told you last week, but I'll repeat it, are 66 million cubic miles of water. Okay, nothing more than a few drops in his palm. And yet, what does the gospel say? The gospel says that 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 Christ, God in the flesh, spread out his palms and willingly sacrificed his perfect life to buy you to redeem you, the innocent who dies for the guilty, so that the guilty, by the payment of that innocent, might be proclaimed what we're not. And what is that? It's innocent. It's amazing. It's incredible. And so relative to the size of the universe, okay, we're really small. Relative to the size of God, we're even smaller. But that doesn't mean that we are without value. Christ did not die for the universe But He did die for you. And more than that, He put you and I on a planet in which that which is little, that which is scarce, that which is rare, that which is uncommon, small in quantity, is actually the most valuable thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, people are not freaking out over sand on the beach, but gold? Very precious. Very precious to the Lord. So anyway, I rehearse all of that today because as we come to Psalm 19 today, as Julie just read for us, uh, we are once again required to get out the same blanket, metaphorically, go back into the backyard, we're going to stay in the AC, okay, and then lay down on it next to David to once again gaze up this time, not only into the night sky, but into the day time sky as well, and to consider the message of the heavens. In other words, David is coming to us, and he's saying, let me tell you something that in here you already know, even if you've never processed it. The created order, the heavens above, have a message, as do the created order below. So what is the message of the created order? He'll tell us here right out of the gate and then develop it. But the Word of God, too, has a message. There is the world of God and there is the Word of God. (laughs) And they're both saying something that David wants us to hear. So let's look for it. Psalm 19 begins like this. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, and then from his back, on the blanket, next to you, he says this, The heavens do what? Because here's the message. They declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Let me just sum it up. The whole of the heavens are jumping up and down and going, Hey, look up here! Because here's our message. A, there is a God. B, He is unfathomably glorious unimaginably glorious. It's incredible. It's amazing. And David figured that out with just the naked eye. Listen, we don't have to just, you know, keep ourselves to what we can see with our eyes. Today we have this amazing technology. We have things like the Hubble telescope that allow us to see out into the night sky in ways that David could never otherwise see. And frankly, that's a big advantage for us. And so I want to stop for a second and take advantage of that advantage. In other words, I want to show you some pictures. As of 2011, the Hubble telescope had taken over a million pictures already. I have no idea how many it's taken by now. But I'm going to show you ten. And the first is what's called the Crab Nebula. I'm going to give you the definition of nebula. If it helps you, that's great. Afterwards, you can explain it to me. But this is what it is. A nebula is a cloud of gas or dust in interstellar space. 
That help? Not really. Let's just look at the picture. The Crab Nebula is the result of a bright supernova explosion that was actually seen by Chinese and other astronomers in the year 1054. It is 6,500 light years from Earth. So what that means, practically speaking, is that if you can travel at 186,000 miles per second, you can get there in 6,500 years. At the center of the Crab Nebula is a super-dense neutron star that is rotating once every 33 milliseconds and shooting out rotating lighthouse-like beams of radio waves and light. That's one picture. Just one thing going on in the universe that the Lord made. The next one is called the spiral galaxy pair. So it's a picture of two galaxies located about 55 million light years away from Earth. So a little farther trip. It's located in what's called the Virgo cluster, which contains, by the way, nearly 2,000 galaxies. So this is two of 2,000, but just in one cluster. The next is called the Bubble Nebula. The Bubble Nebula is seven light years wide, so that's kind of cool. I mean, if you want to go from you know, one side to the other at 186,000 miles per second, you can do that in seven years. Now, you have to go 7,100 years to get there, so you might want to think about that if you're packing for that, but, but you can get there. And so the seething star that forms this nebula is 45 times larger than our sun, and the gas on that star gets so hot that it escapes away into space as a stellar wind that moves at over 4 million miles per hour. It's amazing. It's like I do yard work, you know, and the Lord does this. <laughs> By the way, the yard work comment was a total lie, so I just got to be honest. I don't do yard work, and the Lord does this. My wife is here, so I've just got to say it how it really is. All right, the next one is called the Veil Nebula Supernova Remnant. Uh, it's actually a lot bigger, so this is just a part of the picture. Uh, but this is all that remains of a star uh, that was once 20 times larger than our sun. The next one is called the Herbig Haro Jet. It's located in the Milky Way, so it's kind of in our subdivision. Uh, it's inside a turbulent birthing ground for new stars known as the Orion B Molecular Cloud Complex. Okay, so practice that one. Try that times five. Okay, fast. Some of us live in apartments. This lives in the Orion B Molecular Cloud Complex, which is about 1,350 miles, or light years, sorry, away from Earth. Uh, in the center of this image, there's a newborn star um, that's shooting out these jets of light. So that's what that is. It's pretty amazing. The next one's actually my favorite, but not because when you look at it initially, you go, whoa, you know, but because of what it's a picture of. Uh, a couple of the objects that have like these diffraction spikes, like this here, I don't know if you guys can see that everywhere. Um, those are stars, but with the exception of those few that have those spikes, what you're looking at is a picture. Everything within it is a galaxy. Think about that. And the picture, relative to the universe, uh, somebody was telling me this after the first service who's familiar with this, he said, if you take a pencil and you hold it out like this, and you imagine the size of the eraser on the pencil, that's how much of the universe that picture captures. Hundreds of billions of galaxies. The next one's a very famous picture. It's called the Pillars of Creation. Uh, so the pillars are about five light years tall. So, you know, from here to here, 
at 186,000 miles per second for five years. You can do that. It's about 6,500 light years away, but the pillars are part of a small region of the Eagle Nebula, which is a vast star-forming region uh, of the universe. Uh, the next one is called the Butterfly Nebula, which is kind of beautiful and cool-looking. Uh, the Butterfly Nebula shows what happens to a star when it dies. Uh, so at the end of its life, the gas is released um, from the dying star, and in this case, it's racing across space at more than 600,000 miles per hour which is forming the shape of a celestial butterfly. The next one is called the Spiral Galaxy NGC 1300. Uh, and you maybe or you're thinking, man, you know, I mean, something that beautiful deserves a better name than NGC 1300. Uh, but again, there are hundreds of billions. You know, it's not like name and hurricanes. Okay, we'll call this one Jim. You know, like hundreds of billions. So you got nothing but numbers. So it's NGC 1300. It's kind of an unusual spiral galaxy in that the arms of the galaxy don't spiral all the way to the center of the galaxy, but they're connected to two ends of a straight bar of stars with a nucleus in the middle right there, which is pretty amazing. And then the last one that I wanted to show you is called the Horsehead Nebula. I think it's really cool. Uh, clearly, it's named the Horsehead Nebula because, you know, the astronomers... Uh, looked at it and thought about a horse. Um, I'm not going to lie. When I looked at it originally, I thought about the most irritating Star Wars character. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the original Star Wars came out and they're classics. Like, you know, that's just, they're awesome. And then I think the next one had him in it and then I haven't seen any since. So, because I'm just, <laughs> he ruined it for me. And if you see, that's actually a layover now of him over the, over the nebula just to make my point, but let us not profane the work of the Lord. So let's go back for a minute to what's actually in outer space and what actually is not the creation of George Lucas or anyone from Hollywood. It's really out there. That's amazing. It's a part of the Orion molecular cloud located 1,500 light years away in the constellation of Orion. And I would challenge you to take it in and to realize that it represents just a teeny, tiny, itsy-bitsy, little, little, little fragmented glimpse of the glory of Almighty God who is 100% represented to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is to Jesus that this psalm is driving us but David starts with the created order. So he begins with the heavens, and again he says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day, he says, it pours out speech. It means literally it gushes forth with speech. And night to night it reveals knowledge of Him, that He exists and that He's amazing. There is no speech, David says, nor are there words whose voices are not heard for the voice of the sun and the moon and the stars and the nebulas and the constellations and the galaxies and all of these different things. Where do they go? They go out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world to which he adds that in them, meaning in the heavens, God has done what for the sun? He has set a tent for the sun. Look, he's speaking as a poet. He's not saying, let me describe as a physics professor for you how this whole... It's not what he's trying to do. Saying the sun shines in the day and at night, it is hidden. God prepares a tent for it. But then in the morning, what does it do? 
It comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man, it runs its course across the sky with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And then here's something we all know by experience here. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Amen. But what is David saying? He's saying that there is nowhere to hide from the message of the heavens. Nowhere. And that the message of the heavens is... There is a God, and He is altogether glorious. And if I can just add to that, not that David needs any help, but I would say that the same thing is true for so much of what we deal with every single day in life. It's the created order down here too. It has the same message, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Most of us are Floridians. Most of us, unless you've got you know, kind of a cool, unique license plate, have oranges on our plate. So let's use the orange tree. I could use the apple tree. I could use the cherry. I could use any fruit-producing plant. But we're in Florida. So what do we see with the orange tree? We see the goodness of God as one very small aspect of His very great glory displayed for us in the way that God created the orange tree. And here's why I say that. Because when He created the orange tree, He didn't create a tree that just produces a couple of oranges a year. And then each orange has a couple of seeds within it. And then you can, you know, take the seeds out of those few oranges and plant them. And next year you'll have, I don't know, eight more trees. And then plant them. And the next year you'll have, you know, 36 more trees. Or... No, no, no. He created trees that are laden down with hundreds and hundreds of oranges. Why? As an emblem of His goodness. My goodness. To feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty. The tree's going, hey! God exists and He is good. We see an example of the mercy of God in the way that He designed water. I think I may have said this years ago, but think about this for a minute. Can you imagine how much a cloud weighs like a cloud full of water? Think about all the water that falls upon the earth. Think about the weight of all the water that falls upon the earth. Falls thousands of feet to the earth. How in the world does all that water with all its weight not utterly decimate everything on the planet? Well, because of its design. It's asymmetrical. It's triaxial. It it spins as it falls. That's the point. Faster and faster until it fragments off into millions and billions of tiny little drops that far from decimating everything on the earth, bring life to everything on the earth. It's remarkable. We see an example of the wisdom of God as just one more aspect of His glory and the way that He's designed virtually everything, frankly. Scientists a long time ago, incidentally, have discerned a mathematical pattern that produces precisely what's called the golden spiral. I don't know if you've heard this. But the golden spiral shows up everywhere. It's all over the place. Listen to some of the things and, and think of the diversity of these things that you see it in. So it shows up in things as diverse as galaxies and hurricanes. As the spiral seed pattern, patterns in flowers and plants and the cochlea of the human ear. Ram's horns and seahorse tails. DNA molecules, waves at the beach as they curl and break. Tornadoes and human embryos, seashells and the tails of comets as they wind their way around the sun, the placement of branches on trees and then of the leaves around the branches and of flowers and all of their petals and how they're placed. It's remarkable. And the length of the different bones in our hands. Mathematically precise. One as opposed to the next as opposed to the next. It's remarkable. And I can keep going, but the point is that everywhere we look, up, down, around, there is a message. And the message is, God exists. 
And man, is He amazing. <laughs> Unbelievably glorious. In fact, in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul comes and he tells us something that I think we all already know, at least deep down, if we're willing to put it on the table and be honest about it. And that is to say that if we're going to ignore the message of the heavens and of the earth, we have to work at it. We've got to look for reasons to do that. We've got to marshal our resources around that idea so that we can suppress it. And why would we want to do that? Because it's a simple answer. And it's inside of all of us by nature. We want to do that because we don't want there to be a God. Because then if there is a God, then we can't be God for ourselves. And we're held accountable to Him. And we don't want to be held accountable to Him. We just want to be held accountable to us. It's interesting to me. I think the most vivid image of wisdom in the Bible is that of a woman. Personified wisdom. And she goes to the gate of the city of life and she places herself strategically at the gate of the city of life. The idea being that everyone who's entering into life with all of its opportunities and challenges, right? With all of the good things and the bad things, all of its trials and temptations and all the decisions that are going to need to be made are going to have to actually walk past wisdom to go in. And when you think about it like that, you think to yourself, well, good grief. It's going to, I mean, wisdom's going to need a stadium, People are going to be spending out the night trying to get tickets to hear wisdom. Why? Because just like there is a wisdom revealed in the order of the universe that God has created, there is a wisdom to the life and the world that He's created too. And He freely gives it to us. He gives it to us in His written Word. He gives it to us in the living Word. It was Jesus. He's going, hey, I might know a few things about this because I don't know, just being the Creator and everything. And so what you're expecting, if you're looking at it from that perspective at least, is you're expecting that, man, people are going to be lining up to hear wisdom. But that's not how she's portrayed. She's portrayed as, forgive me, but kind of a deranged beggar. Someone who seems unstable. You know, like maybe somebody, like if you're walking into the gate of the city of life and you're on her side of the street, you cross over. Certainly you don't make eye contact. So almost no one stops and listens. And what David is wondering is, am I going to stop and listen? And are you? Listen to what? The message of the created order, for starters. But the message of the wisdom of the Lord as He gives it to us in His laws and in His precepts and in His rules and in His Word. And I know that because in verse 7, that's what he shifts to. He goes from the message of the heavens to the message of the Word. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now hang on a second. If, if you had walked in here and we had given you like a 3 by 5 card and it's finished this sentence, the law of the Lord is, and you could be really honest, you didn't have to worry about what anybody around you was thinking, how would you have finished it? The law of the Lord is intimidating. The law of the Lord is discouraging. The law of the Lord is condemning. Is that what it is? That's not what it is if you're a Christian. It's not. Now, it may be if you're not a Christian, but that's only so that it can lead you to the one who can relieve that pressure, who can remove that stain, who can chase away that guilt, and who can grant to you a law that looks more like the law that looks to David here. The law of the Lord is perfect. And what does it do for the soul? Because it's what we all want. Reviving the soul. We're having a reviving the soul class. In fact, you can just come by. You know, like, everybody would go. 
The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. What's its effect? Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. And what do they do? Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. And what does it do? Enlightening the eyes. It shows up on your face, this joy in here. The fear of the Lord. What is that? Is that I'm scared to death of God? Not if I'm a Christian. Why? Because Jesus Christ has taken away every fear. Hasn't He? No, it's not that. The fear of the Lord is is that moment where you realize God is God and I am not God. And He is glorious and woe. And you receive His Word as the Word of God. And you submit yourself to it. David's son says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it happens. The fear of the Lord, David says, is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. In fact, much more to be desired are they than gold and even more than fine gold. Why? Because money can put food on a table, but it can't build a family around it. It can buy a house, but not a home. It can purchase luxury, but not love. Not real love. Sweeter also than honey. And the drippings of the honeycomb is the Word of God. Moreover, he says, by them your servant is warned. And in heeding the warnings, your servant is protected. You know, we all look at God as some kind of cosmic killjoy. Don't do this and don't do this and don't do... Don't do this. Why? Well, because it it leads to addiction. Oh, oh, okay. Don't do this. Why? Because it it leads to regret. Okay, Okay, don't do this. Why? Because it, it leads to death. Death of all kinds. Relationships, conscience, bodies, health. God's not coming along and going, hey, let me steal your fun. He's saying, listen, I'm not a taker, I'm a giver. Here's my life. And here's my law that you might learn how to live for me wisely and find protection and life and freedom and joy within it. And in keeping the law, David says, there is great reward. And so, you know, maybe you're thinking, well, that's nice. But what is there for those who don't keep it? Because most of us have spent a lot of time not keeping it. And so has David. So that's where his heart goes. He says, who can discern his own errors? Listen, we can remember a lot of our mistakes, but we can't remember all of them. <laughs> and, and there are a lot of mistakes we've made that we don't even know about. What? That was, a, that's a, that was an error? That was a, we might find out later, but he's going, my goodness. I have stuff I don't even know about that I've done. So he comes to the Lord and he asks God to do for him what only God can do for any of us. He says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Why? Because I don't have any hidden faults and I'm not guilty. No, 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 you're guilty. (laughs) But God can declare you innocent nonetheless. And not just from hidden faults. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, from those things that I do, knowing at the time that I do them, that they are wrong, but I do them nevertheless. Let them, the hidden faults and presumptuous sins, not have dominion over me. For then and only then, I shall be blameless and innocent of what? Of great transgressions. One of the reasons why David is such a friend to me is he blew it big in life, if you know his story. And he also wrote stuff like this. So how does God make the innocent, or how does God make the guilty innocent? Through the cross. The innocent one dies for the guilty. 
so that at the expense of the innocent one's life, the guilty can be set free. The guilty can be washed clean and made new. That's the hope of the Gospel. And that's a hope nothing and no one can take from you. It's the message of the heavens and of the earth, and particularly, it's the message of the Word of God. We give ourselves to Christ, and then we take up His Word, and by His Spirit in community with one another, we fear Him in the sense that we say, He is God, I am not, and this is authentic wisdom for living. And we submit ourselves and our far lesser wisdom to Him and learn to follow Him. And then this prayer of David that he closes with right here in verse 14, authentically can be spoken by us as well, where he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, let what's coming out of me, Lord, and what's happening inside of me, okay, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So what's the message? The message is realize that there is a God and He's not me and He's not you. But He's come to you in the person of Jesus. And He's come to you in the person of Jesus to in love rescue you from all of the ways you've made yourself and other people and other things God and bring you to Him that He might teach you to authentically live. So do that. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this man, David. We thank You for his testimony in life, which is Yours. You created it. We thank You for the ways that You redeemed all of his brokenness and errors and failures and mistakes and for the way that You Yourself have written Your own Word through him and preserved it that we might benefit as well. And so, Lord, I pray for honest moments, honest moments in which we realize, you know, there is a God and I'm not Him. And whereas I may be very small, boy, I must be very precious to Him and that He sent His Son. He became a speck on a speck and a speck and a speck to get me, to redeem me, to forgive me. Honest moments in which we surrender our lives and realize that our wisdom isn't working, that we need that forgiveness. And Lord, let us take up Your Word in personal worship and corporate worship and community with one another and community groups and teach us what it means to live for You. Pick us up when we fail. Dust us off. Forgive us in Jesus. But Lord, let Your wisdom be seen in our lives to Your glory. For You are and Your glory is great. In Jesus' name, Amen.